This is episode 25 with former Australian fast bowler Damien Fleming. I'm your host, Tristan Cannell. Another bumper episode ahead. Cricket theme again. We're going to be talking to former Australian fast bowler and the guy who likes to call himself the bowlologist. Or the bowlologist. He's going to already tongue-tying me. Damien Fleming. Flemo, one of my favorite cricketers growing up. He could swing the ball like none others. You know, everyone had their style from McGrath to Jason Gillespie, Andy Bickle, Michael Kasperwitz. You know, we were... You know, very, very fortunate, especially through the 90s and 2000s, to have a number of Australian fast bowlers. The depth and quality of cricketers coming through Australian ranks were second to none. So it's going to be interesting to chat to Damien today because, you know, he brings a lot of personality. He's great on Channel 10, especially during the Big Bash and also on the radio. So I love Damo's Flemo's style, and it's going to be great to have a chat and just, you know, really, from his own words, what really did make Damien successful. Before we get Damien on the show, just a big thank you to everyone tuning in and leaving me five-star reviews on iTunes. I really appreciate all the support. Please connect with me. I would love to hear any of your feedback or even if you just want to have a chat. So send me a quick email at Tristan at TalkingWithTK.com. On Twitter, I'm TNL Fitness. Facebook, TalkingWithTK. Or Instagram, you can find me at Tristan Nell. But let's get straight to today's show. I introduce Damien Fleming. Guys, my special guest is Damien Fleming. Damien is a former Australian cricket player, playing over 100 times for his country while also representing Victoria at state level. He's made an impressive transition away from the game and has forged a path in both coaching and the media. I welcome Damien Fleming. Flem, welcome to Talking with TK, bud. Yeah, Tristan, thanks for that intro. I'm glad you could read my writing, mate. <laughs> Got it straight off your Instagram. Good little pump up early on. That, that started the uh, a bit like the new ball. You know, you've, <laughs> you've, you've just released a nice out swinger. They've played and missed. I think we've got a good interview ahead of us. Yeah, for sure. It's actually, Flem, actually, this is one of my questions, actually. Opening the bowling or coming on first change, you know, with yourself being a swing bowler, you could probably use the ball in both occasions. Which one did you prefer? I didn't do first change. Don't At even all. think about not no. not opening, not not doing it. Um, the one thing I did concede, um, although I, I didn't have a say in it, was two blokes I love immensely. But my my little chip against them, um, one being Mervyn Hughes yeah. for Victoria, and and the other one Glenn Pigeon McGrath. I bowled a lot with them opening up, but guess what they did? They always bowled with the breeze. I didn't actually get a chance to. You know, there was never a, hey, Flem, do you want to bowl with the Bruce this time? Uh, we either win or lose the toss. Be bowling. I'd see which end uh, Merb or McGrath was, was walking out. 
their run-up, and I just knew to go down the other end. I knew I was bowling into the Bruce. Flem, what's with everyone stitching you up? You've got these two stitching you up. You've got Warney dropping yes. the catch to deny your second hat-trick, mate. What is going on Correct. in this team? Yeah, to be, despite, um, let me talk about, you know, some of the sledging that went on in our era, and we got labelled um, sledges. We used to call it mental disintegration. You know, anything we could suggest from the to, to the opposition that wasn't racist or overly personal got them thinking <laughs> about the comment coming down, not... Um, uh, the ball, uh, we thought that was a win, but um, the, the, a lot of the sledging actually in my era was towards myself. So that was that was pretty tough to take, and um, particularly how they used to hide me down at Fine Lake because I wasn't one of the better fieldsmen in that era. And to be fair, I wasn't too bad, but when you had the two wars, you had Ricky Ponting, Andrew Simons, Matthew Hayden, you know, that, they were two, uh, four or five of the best fieldsmen that Australia has ever produced. I used to, if I wasn't bowling, I'd sit down a fine leg and we we might get a wicket and everyone would be laughing about the sledge and I'd sort of come in late and go, oh yeah, w- w- what was the sledge? And, you know, boys would probably, you know, sort of say, oh, you sort of had to be there, mate. It's probably lost impact now. So it, it was an honour to play for my country, but there, there was some frustrations bowling into the breeze and being um, a permanent fine leg fieldsman. Yeah. You know, before we we started the interview, you were telling me about, you know, you coaching your children and they both have a different style of swinging, swinging the ball. And, you know, with your style, it was very unique. You know, you were in an era where only a few, few of you guys actually did swing the ball. From the start, the origins of that, where did that style develop from? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, my idol was um, Dennis Lilly. You know, I just absolutely loved him. My first day of cricket was um, the 1981-82 test match against the West Indies where um, Kim Hughes, another guy I loved, um, scored a 100 that was one of the greatest 100s of all time. Later on that day, Dennis got three late wickets on, it must have been day one, and I just was so pumped because I knew I was going the next day. So Dennis has ripped through the top order. He got Sir Vivian Richards out for a duck. Mm. And he's only a couple of wickets away from breaking, you know, the test record from um, uh, Lance Gibbs, the West Indian off-spinner. And my dad took me there. And and when Dennis got the nick from Larry Gomes to Greg Chappell, you know, it was just euphoric. You know, it was just massive. But there's 50,000, 60,000 people there. It, it sounded like 10 times more. It was a coliseum. And Dennis, and I've had a lot of time spent with him coaching and that since. But, yeah. you know, and he's such a strong personality, big charisma. Um, but he was overcome. So he actually, instead of going down to fine league, he'd come down to third man in, in front of me. And it was just surreal that my idol had just broken the, the most wickets in Test match history. He, you know, he was metres away. And I reckon that was the moment that inspired me to, to play for Australia, you know, to get the baggy green in, in my hand. Um, and obviously it's a dream back then as an 11-year-old player. So you want to be the next Dennis Lilly and get the chanting. And I remember when I first saw myself bowl, uh, I was... I'd already played for Victoria at 18. Uh, they, they used to play them on Channel 9, the one day as state, one day as back then. And I must admit, I was a little bit underwhelmed with my bowling action, even though some people say it was a nice fluent action. I was expecting to see Dennis Lilly. Mm. And really, it was around that time, our, our state coach was uh, an Australian legend called Ian Redpath, Reddits. And 
I remember in one of the one days he, he came up and he said, whenever whenever anyone was uh, looked like they were trying to bowl too fast, Redders always used to confront them and say, who do you think you are? You're running in like Wes Hall. So the West Indian quick <laughs> in the 60s. So yeah. Wes obviously had an impact on Redders when he was playing against him. And, and he said, uh, we've picked you as a swing bowler. And I was 18 years of age. And it was the first time I'd actually heard about it. I thought yeah. I was going to be a genuine quick and so it took a couple of years. So what I think was happening when, when my action got through nicely, I was buying outswingers. When I fell away a little bit, they'd swing in. But the big factor was the ball was moving in the air. And it's a unique arc that not every fast bowler does. But it did take me two or three years, I think, to actually perfect it, um, to make sure that my outswing was consistent and I had the in-swinger as my surprise delivery. So... It wasn't like I, you know, I was thought as a genuine swing bowler coming through the pathways, and it was probably only around that time, the '89 Ashes, and I'd already played for Victoria, that I got a full appreciation of someone like Terry Alderman, who took yeah. 40 wickets in '81 and '89, but it was really '89 that, um, you know, I took note of his outswinger and particularly that ball that was more an off cutter that hit the seam and went in, and got all those LBWs. But I think as a kid. You, you want to follow the, the, the fastest bowler, the one with the most charisma, but us swing bowlers, it's, it's, it's more subtle. Um, and I think when you get older, uh, when you play and have to face swing bowlers, you get a more um, appreciation of um, you know, guys who don't bowl at 150 kilometres an hour, but yeah. make the ball swing and make the ball swing late. Hey, you were still pretty fast, though. You were still averaging you know, those top 130s. Were you always fast since you were 18? Yeah, I, I was always a faster bowler as a kid. Um, but I, I think one thing, I, I remember I grew up in a, a place called Springvale and um, they had an indoor cricket centre probably open up when I was about 15 or 16. <laughs> Some of my mates used to I hang actually know where it is. Yeah, my uncles live nearby, yeah. Okay, yeah, just on, on Springvale Road. Because my dad's from Melbourne. <laughs> okay, yeah. So they have, um, last time I went there, they actually had the Australian Champions trips there because Cricket Australia have taken... Um, ownership of indoor cricket because when you look at it, it's another form that people are playing and participating. So, yeah. you know, we want to embrace indoor cricket. And what it did, it actually added variety. You know, I reckon I perfected a really good Yorker uh, and, and a slowable. So I'd already built some skills once I, you know, got to, to the Victorian team. But, yeah, pace was a, was a, was still a good factor. I mean, still when you're bowling in the 130s or, or early 140s, I mean, that, that's, that's still good pace. But what, what I tried to, um, have up my sleeve was if I was bowling early mid-130s, that my bouncer and my Yorker, um, were always a yard or two quicker, particularly with the older ball when it wasn't swinging. So, um, you can actually, you know, people talk about your change-ups as in your slower balls. But I encourage faster bowlers when I'm coaching is make sure you've got that change up as well because you'll get a lot of wickets, particularly bowls and LBs. Um, if you're not the fastest bowler, um, a batsman might be, and you're bringing them forward, they might be sweating on your shorter ball. But if that's two or three yards quicker than your stock ball, you're probably going to you're going to do them in pace, and you might get a catch at square leg or down at fine leg there. So there's different components to to fast bowling and, and biology, as uh, as I like to call it. And, and certainly um, those changes of pace are, are really important. 
Yeah. So I want to get to Bob to bowlology in a second, but before I do, yesterday I was actually on YouTube and I just, you know, put Damien Fleming in there just to see a few highlights. I wanted to kind of just go over it again and there was a clip called The Perfect Over. I'm not sure if you've seen it, but it was you bowling yeah. in a one day at a Sashin Tendulkar and what happens in okay. it, you, the first four balls, you, every single one was a different change up and then the fifth one, you clean bowling. Have, do you remember that? Yeah, I, I know. I haven't seen the clip, but I know the the game you're talking about. I think it was a one day or in Perth. SCG and, or Perth, I can't remember. I was one. Yeah, I, I, it was funny. Perth was really good with red ball for me. It swung a lot, um, so I got wickets in Test match cricket and four day cricket. But I found with the white ball, sometimes you know, with the doc, Freeman or Doctor, it was a little bit temperamental. And yeah. I remember before this game, and 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 no doubt we'll touch on, you know, the ingredients. In, in getting the best out of yourself in in um, in my case in cricket and, and in the media was, you know, preparation's everything. And yeah. I remember going out near the pitch and I grabbed a new kookaburra ball and, and I, I and I just bowled to Adam Gilchrist out there. I, I just wanted to test how much, if it was swinging, eh, with, it, with it was swinging and, and how much. And it, and it was good. I, I bowled about 10 balls out there and I knew the ball was swinging, so I knew it was game on. So for me, if the ball's swinging, I used to uh, say it was a green light. You know, I need to attack. There's no point bowling a meter, uh, half a metre outside of stump and waiting for the batsman to come to me. When it's green conditions, I have to attack. And even though it was Sachin Tendulkar, who was, along with Brian Lara and Ricky Ponting, the, the best batsman that I bowled to, I knew I had to attack, and, and, and the ball was swinging. And in in Perth, when it is swinging, you get that extra bounce, and, and, and every ball, everyone's vulnerable there. And um, I remember he played missed a couple of times, and then and then I knocked him over um, with, with a bit of a peach. But I, I reckon if we go back, if I hadn't done that sort of preparation, I, I don't reckon I would have been ready to go and ready to take him on. And, and lucky yeah. enough, conditions suited. They were green, um, and it went my way. Yeah, Flint, can we stick on preparation for a bit and we'll get a few insights into exactly how you would prepare. In terms of, you know, you just say, we'll use India, for example. And at that time when you were bowling, you had Ganguly, you had Tandorka, you had Jaravid. How much preparation and focus in terms of video work would you do on each guy? Would you sit down with then Glenn McGrath? What was the strategy behind it all? Yeah, we didn't have a bowling coach in that 94 to 2001 era. But what we what we did was you mentioned Glenn McGrath, Jason Gillespie, Michael Kasperich, Paul Rifle. Um, without really having uh, prepared meetings, we, we did talk a lot about the the opposition batsman, whether it was at training um, or, or within games. So yeah. we really did help each other out a lot there. Um, so it was more done probably as a fast bowling, well, we used to call it the fast bowling cartel. Cartel. John Buchanan told me this yesterday, and he wanted me to ask you about the music. Yeah, the fast the cartel bowling music. cartel. Yeah, well, I've got a story on, on Johnny <laughs> one day in, in, in India, but um, but I, lo- I love John as a coach. But, <laughs> but the fast bowling cartel, we actually did, did um, build a, a group within a group. Uh, we allowed the spinners in there as well. Um, particularly, you know, whenever Warney was around, but Stuart McGill and, and Colin Miller, because he bowled out swingers as well, he was in there. And But um, but I, I was a big one on, um, 
talking about the preparing and, and knowing who you're bowling against, but you've you got to be flexible with your plans. And, you know, for me, I wanted to be able to get my stock ball going straight away because I didn't like to be um, getting frustrated that my stock ball wasn't going um, yep. because if I got too focused internally, um, I wasn't doing the, the two other major things I wanted to be able to do in the first over. And they were get my stock ball going. What's happening with the pitch? You know, get back again when I use that traffic light system. Is it is it a green light? As in, it's a green pitch and the ball's moving. I'm going to bowl fuller and I'm going to attack. Is it, uh, you know, orange conditions where that, that's not bad. There's a bit of swing, but I'll probably bowl a, a, a length a little bit fuller maybe a bit more outside of stump and, you know, they're going to have to come at me a little bit um, with the odd ball where I attack. And then often occasions in Pakistan and um, India, it, it's a red light straight away. Yeah. There's minimal There's minimal swing. There's no seam. I'm going to have to bowl a little bit quicker. Yeah. And then thirdly, what's the batsman doing? Um, are they getting forward? Are they getting pushed across, across the crease? Are they playing back? Um You've got to be able to sum up those conditions in the first over, and, and that can change at, at any any stage. So even someone as good as Sachin Tendulkar, who'd scored a couple of hundreds in the last couple of games, you know, everyone's preparation's different, and and you needed to be able to live in the moment and know what's happening. So if he's all of a sudden, gee, his footwork isn't moving, he's getting caught on the crease. Or I, I want to get him driving. I want to get him driving through the covers here. So. So I think we're pretty good, the fast bowling cartel, in that era of helping each other. Um, but then when you're in the heat of the battle, you know, I use those three cues, um, get my stock ball going, what's the pitch doing, what's the batsman doing, and, and that's how I build a plan in-game. Yeah, what about on the field? Was it Steve Waugh or Ricky Ponting at the time, whoever was captain, that would kind of have a chat between overs or every fifth over? What was the time period between when you spoke to your kind of senior guys? Yeah, to be honest, I, I wasn't a big um, captain seeker, so okay. I, I rarely um, went to them um, looking for help. I, you know, I like you know Tubby Taylor. You know, his his manner is. You know, I remember one Test match against England, the ball was swinging both ways, and you know, I was having a bit of fun that way. And um, you know, he'd come down going flam. Just stop, stick with your stock out swing with your odd in swinger there," said Naro Skipper. And then he he had such a great temperament, um, Tubby. You know, so many captains I played under, particularly Victoria. You know, you bowl a bad ball and they do the old teapot. You know, the hands on the hips as as if it was a personal affront. And you know, sorry, I didn't mean to bowl the ball down leg side, but he was very calm. If you bowl badly, all he'd say is, that'll do you, Flem, i.e., you bowl crap and you're coming off, but he, he wouldn't <laughs> be demonstrative about it. He, he had a really good manner about it. Steve Wall, because he bowled a bit when he was younger, you know, he had a bit of a bowling mentality. So if he was a um, point or gully and he felt like your length was a little bit short, he was um, quite good at coming up and saying, mate, I reckon you're bowling a fraction short. Uh, if he was at cover, he goes, listen, his weight's back. I, I reckon you set him up for your slow ball. So he was a little bit more um, proactive because he had a had a fast bowling background. Yeah. But, but but as a general rule, uh, you know, I, I, I like sort of controlling a situation. I, I used to use the wicket keepers a little bit. I had a bit of a technical flaw if I closed myself off too much with my feet, i.e. they were pointing to fine leg, 
and I couldn't get my back leg through. Um, I, I, sometimes I couldn't generate a lot of power, which would hurt my pace. So I'd go to, um, you know, if it was Victoria, Darren Berry, if it was Australia, Ian Healy or Adam Gilchrist, I'd say, can you, if you see me just doing that, this my follow through is not getting through, can you just say, get down to me, Flint? And that, and that, if I, once I heard that, I knew I just need to straighten up a little bit and get that back leg through. Yeah. So, so within that, you, you, and I still say it to, to guys that I coach now, you, you still need to be your best coach on the field. You need to be the best coach. Um, and that's not to say that you can't outsource IET wicketkeeper or captain. Mm. And then once the game was finished, Flem, what would you do then? You know, I, I was pretty good at setting um, goals for, for each game. So, you know, I, you know, I had sort of some, some outcome goals, as in how many wickets and how many maidens. So I, I wanted to bowl an economy rate. Uh, but also I had some, um, you know, mental and tactical goals. So I, I'd sort of go like that and, and give myself a, a bit, of, bit of a rating on, on where the game do. So, yeah, you know, I, I like to sort of uh, appraise myself and, and, and think about, you know, where, where I could get a bit better there. And, and having those sort of match goals made it pretty easy to think that, um, you, know, you know, maybe my length was just a bit short or my line was a little bit straight there. Um, you know, you know, what about my self-talk? Was it too negative, which it could be at times, you know, yeah. um, maybe get that a little bit positive. So that'd be the way um, I went about it. We, As I said, we didn't really have a fast bowling coach. So, you know, we didn't get a lot of um, assessment from the coaching coaches or captains um, besides a bit of on, on the field. And in hindsight, you know, probably, you know, should have used you know, some different teammates at times, um, you know, just for, for a bit of feedback or even ask for their assessment because, you know, one thing you pride yourself in is that you're, um, you're low maintenance and you manage yourself well, but it's hard when you're living within yourself that um, sometimes you can't see externally, you know, what you're doing. So yeah. in hindsight, I, I probably would have liked to have a fast bowling coach just to be able to bounce things over at times and, and probably more from a, um, you know, I think I knew my action pretty well and I had a good set, a base set of skills. Yep. But um, I think mental and tactics are the two areas where, you know, I think a good fast bowling coach can help you. Okay, so now you set up, you know, once you finish cricket, you set up what you talked about before, bowl, bowlology. Yeah, tell so us, tell us like a this, little bit about like the... Jesus, that was a tongue twister. So tell me a little bit about the origins of that, Flynn. So the only reason I brought it up was to do podcasts and get people like yourself to actually try and pronounce it. And <laughs> I do a lot of public speaking. I do a lot of public speaking, and I make sure everyone that introduces me has to say it. And I reckon it's about 50-50. I reckon yeah. only half the people can actually get it out there. But it actually comes from a, from a serious um, when I retired, I still had another year on my state contract and I saw the uh, the head coach of the Cricket Academy fast bowling, Troy Cooley, was going to England and in the last couple of years, you know, I was quite injury prone in the last mm. few years and, and um, was really starting to think about coaching. You know, I rang uh, Matthew Drain, who was at the, the Cricket Academy, uh, sorry, at, at Cricket Australia and, and said, What's a story here? 
um, I, I'm interested. Can I still play and do it? And, and he was taken back a bit. He's gone, you're not going to believe this. We've just come out of a meeting and, and your name was mentioned. So um, I was going through my third shoulder reconstruction at the time. Was still keen to play. Went through the process and, and uh, you know, it was a job that um, I couldn't play with and thought at 32, 33, you know, I saw my future, you know, which was coaching. So, you know, retirement's an interesting one and we're seeing some AFL footballers go through at the moment. And, you know, retirement's tough because in in a way, when you're you're, you're an athlete, the worst thing you can do is to give up. You know, the one yeah. thing is you can have a bad day, but you've got to keep um, trying. And it doesn't matter which way you look at retirement. You're actually giving up. So I, I knew I was time to retire and I was looking forward to my future. It was just so hard to uh, actually say I was going to do it because um, in your mind, you're, you're giving up and you're programmed not mm, to give up. Yeah. But, um, but it was fantastic. So I got into it and, and I was sort of, uh, my philosophy with, with, Coaching was, I wanted to be able to coach individuals for, for individual case management. And, you know, one player might be breaking down. So his, his physicality and his, and his strength was in, might, it would be a focus and as it is his action, if it's um, creating harm and forcing the injury. Another guy might be really physically strong and, and got a nice action. Um, but his performances are suffering on the field and, and, and tactically he's poor. So I want to be able to go, right, what are we going to do tactically here and all that sort of stuff. So as I was going through that, and, and I was doing a bit of media at that stage anyway, and, and I remember there was a gridiron player passed away called uh, Perry White, I think his name was, okay. which didn't mean a lot to me, but his nickname was the Ministry of Defence. Now, that's a serious nickname, isn't it? You're a defender. And you called the ministry of uh, the minister of defence. So, so I was just thrown around, and, and the boys um, a little bit left of centre and a bit creative. And I just went, I could pass myself off as a fast bowling coach, and there's probably thousands of them around the world. I could come up with something different, and and I come up with the bowlologist, and I wow. teach bowlology, and there's six deliveries to bowlology. You know, there's the physical, the technical, uh, the skills the mental, the tactical, and ball six, what everything's about, it's about performance. So um, I've got, you know, sort of a, a, a skills matrix um, that they were using up at the academy at the time to assess players and using that traffic light system that I used when I was when I was playing. Uh, you rate yourself green, orange, and red in um, various areas in all those deliveries. And guess what? Once they did that, we just focused on the reds, um, for the young academy guys through there. So and um, so it gave me a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek, left of centre way to go about it. And when you say it or when people try to pronounce it, um, you know, you create a bit of fun. But the actual coaching's serious. And, yeah. and for me, it, it was a way of doing it that way. And then when I started to work on ABC Radio and um, I come up with some biologism, <laughs> as in um, banning the corridor of uncertainty, um, and that was with a conversation of name dropping here, Sir Richard Hadley, who I can't remember why he didn't like the term corridor of uncertainty, which Jeff Boycott, the great English batsman, come up with. And 
the next day on radio, I said I'm banning it, and and good on the the listeners from ABC. They come up with you know a variety of terms like the avenue of apprehension, um, the hallway of hesitation, uh, the boulevard of bewilderment, or my personal favourite, the strip of Indaloo. You're not sure if there's any <laughs> runs in it or not. So bang. So I was quite good at getting other people's ideas and making myself uh, yourself, and um, and it's sort of grown from there. And as I said, it's a bit of tongue-in-cheek but there's still a serious component as well guys we hope you're enjoying the episode with damien fleming if you haven't yet please check out our latest episode we had former australian cricket coach on john buchanan here's a little snippet from our interview with john uh stephen was uh, fairly concise uh, with his words uh, but impactful with his words so if he spoke People stood up and heard and listened. He um, was a man of history, uh, so that when I talked about vision and Everest, Stephen talked about the road less travelled. And so for him, it was again leaving that mark in history um, as the captain of a very, very successful team. Uh, Ricky, on the other hand, still, uh, as I said, uh, led by example, history and so on. Um, but was not a person to rush, well, not necessarily rush, but not a person necessary to make a decision on his own. And I'm not necessarily saying Stephen did that as well, but, but Ricky would have been a person who spent a lot of time just going around to everybody and canvassing their thoughts. Now, he would have a pretty, pretty good idea what he wanted to do, um, but there was always the opportunity that somebody might have something better to say or it gave him the opportunity to really uh, convince people why they should follow his idea. So go back, check out that show. If you're into Australian sports across heaps rugby league, we've had Bradley Clyde and Andrew Eddinghausen as our latest from the leagueies. Also Iron Man Trevor Hendy. Ahead on the show, we're going to be having guys like Shane Hill, Leroy Loggins and another cricket great, Greg Chappell. So if you haven't yet, please subscribe via iTunes and leave me a five-star review. And if you want to get in touch with me, best way is email Tristan at TalkingWithTK.com. But let's get back to today's show. Yeah, Flem, are you still mentoring anyone now? Um, Not really. Um, I'm still doing coaching at at junior level and, and at school level. But I found with the and the media side of things got that busy, particularly over the summer. I, I get frustrated by doing one or two sessions. I, yeah. You know, if I can't commit for the whole time, um, you know, I'm not in. So I did have a, an app for a little while with uh, in conjunction with Cricket Victoria. I thought that was a better way of getting out and um, at, at least being able to hit more people. Um, because you just can't get out there and, and do things. But there's a podcast uh, on the way to there, mate. So you've got to, nice. you've got, you've got to have a competitor in your space there. But I, I, I'm probably going to you know, get into podcasting and, and um, be talking about a variety of ways, and it's going to be entertaining. But I, I reckon I'm going to have a little coaching component in there as well. No, that's definitely some, you know, a point of difference. You know, I spoke to... Actually, Howie today, and his his podcast is unbelievable. He's one of the guys he's that, flying. 
is I inspired yeah. to be like. Do you know what I mean? Like he gives me so much inspiration to reach out to people and, and do it my way as well. But yeah. you know, I guess he's in your corner as well. I know you guys are mates, so I'm sure that that Howie will show you all the little tricks. But if you ever need a ch- uh, any chat, mate, you know I'm always open as well. Yeah, definitely. Now, next one I want to take you to is the day you received your baggy green hat. Who who gave it to you? I'm pretty sure it was in my kit. I was pretty sure it was in my kit. Um, you know, Steve War brought in um, the legends, you know, passing on the baggy green in uh, 1999-2000 Brisbane Test. And uh, Billy Brown, the le- legend from the Invincibles, and what a lovely man he was. Mm. Uh, presented the caps to Adam Gilchrist and, and Scotty Muller. You know, before that, um, it was pretty much in your kit. And, and for me, it was a little bit um, more rewarding. I worked at the Australian Cricket Board as a 21, 22-year-old. And my job was actually fitting out the Australians and Australia A players. So wow. I, I'll, I'll be down there working. And so I, I could just see the baggy green there and, and the bag, and then all, you know, packing it up and, and sending it out. And just thinking, geez, I want that one day, <laughs> the baggy <laughs> green. And then, um, you know, it was a tour to Pakistan and, and, and it was already in my kit. So, um, but that was enough because you just grab it, you smell it, you try it on. You look in the mirror, you know, I think Justin Langer slept with it the first time he had it. <laughs> and, you know, and that tour, Pakistan 94, I think it was the first time Mark Taylor had taken over the captaincy from Alan Border. And, you know, between him and Steve Waugh, I think they come up with at the first session when they're bowling, everyone's got to wear the baggy green. So okay. when the opposition nice. batsmen look up, you know, besides the bowler, they see 10 baggy greens. And, yeah. and for me, I think it was a powerful for, uh, force. Um, it definitely worked to our advantage. You can see other sporting teams have, have taken that on. Um, but even then in 94, it, you know, there was a still a very strong presence for it. You know, you talk to some of the older guys like Bill Laurie, it, it certainly didn't have the, the mystique back in their era because, you know, they got one every tour. But, you know, if you look at, look at it now, um, and, and for the trademark it's become and, and, and the, the powerful message it says. And, and, and even now when you talk to you know, younger state players and, and T20 cricket's such a great form of the game and it's a great way for kids to get their first look of cricket, you know, to a T, um, they all want to baggy grade these kids. And, yeah, uh, you know, I think that's a fantastic thing. From that test debut against Pakistan, you take... A hat trick. Now, were you into big into visualization or anything like that? Not, not really. Um, I actually had a tape of you know good performances, which later got onto DVD when DVD come in, and yeah. and I had that with me, you know, so I could play it. Particularly if I was struggling a little bit, you know, yep. just to. I suppose it is you are visualizing when you when you had that. Um, but I remember major vibes too for you. Definitely. So once again, it was just sort of that mental side of things that, you know, what what can you do to get momentum your way? And I think, you know, having a tape and um, you know, and I'm a visual sort of guy. You know, it certainly certainly helped me. You know, get get into that mode. But um, unfortunately, in Pakistan, that tour. 
you know, I, I happened to pack Ace Ventura Pet Detective, which was my favourite movie at the time. And, <laughs> and uh, the only problem was um, it was hard getting a VHS and then we couldn't get other movies. So we watched that about 120 times <laughs> on that tour. And I actually morphed into Ace Ventura so much so that Ian Healy still calls me Ace right now. Really? Um, so I don't know whether I uh, was visualising a bit of uh, Ace's positivity when when I when I sent down that ball to Salamalik, but I do remember turning to Craig McDermott. I'm on the hat trick, and and let's be honest, and I do a lot of public speaking now and, and build it up pretty big. Um, yeah. No one goes into their first test going, gee, I tell you what, I wish I could have a hat-trick in my first test. Yeah. It's about the last thing you're thinking. Like a fifer, I would have taken a fifer. I got four wickets, I didn't get five. But, and it was heading towards a draw because the next big thing, the, the, the two big biggest pillars um, in the Australian team in that era was to get the bag of green and was to sing this song. And I'd been around the team for nearly a year and we hadn't sung it because we I hadn't played a test match. We hadn't won a test match. And um, we hadn't won a one-day series. And that's when we sang the song. So everyone's building up this song and I'm going, what the heck is it? I hadn't heard it yet. <laughs> so halfway through day five when Salon Malik's on 230, he's bad this out of the game. I thought, oh, well, we're not going to sing the song either. So at least I got the baggy green. But I did... Um, Craig McDermott was a mid-off and I did turn to him and I went Billy Salem doesn't know it yet but he's going to become part of history it sounds corny <laughs> I said it I don't know why I said it release the ball Nick through the heels he takes the catch and um, and I've got this hat trick yeah, you know and that I didn't know if I was the first um, strain to do it I knew my, my Victorian roommate Mervyn Hughes had, had taken one um, but at that stage, I don't think there was a lot of blokes that actually taken them. Mm. And um, so it was a great highlight to actually get a hat-trick in, in any form of the game. And I'd taken a few on the way through, but I was quickly um, shown the, the ups and downs and, and, and how cruel Test cricket could be because as quickly as I'd taken a hat-trick, Mark Taylor and Michael Slater, because it was going to be a draw, um, Tubby got the ball and bowled himself and he got a wicket, and he had the worst bowling action I've seen in any form of cricket, right? <laughs> Absolutely hopeless. He gets a wicket and then takes himself off, so he's got a career bowling average of four. And then Slats, who was just a windmill type of bowler, he gets a wicket. So it just totally devalued my hat-trick. Now, when Slater and back Taylor to everyone wicket, stitching you up again. So once again, I'm absolutely stitched. I had the opportunity... Um, you know, to go off and, and walk the team off. And I think Slats and Tub actually walked the team off. But but the one thing it said to me, I took seven wickets in the game on a pretty flat pitch. It said, I'll get another test match and, and, and maybe or um, possibly, you know, I was up to test level. That, that That's probably what I got out of that, that first test match. Yeah. 1999 World Cup, you get to bowl that last over against South Africa. Is that the greatest kind of feeling when you guys had that draw? Yeah, it was massive, and um, it was sort of bizarre. And, and and this is another one where I encourage young blokes. Is when I first debuted for Victoria at eighteen, I used to just bowl my ten overs at the start. You know, hopefully swing the ball, get a couple of wickets, and that was finished. Then a couple of years later, you know, I started to bowl at the start and and the ends, and 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 I had to build a skill set around that. You know, but being able to bowl Yorkers, 
uh, slower balls with the, with the odd bouncer. So by the time I played for Australia, I bowled a lot at the death. Um, for Victoria, I mean, I think it was my third or fourth game, and it ended up Alan Border's last game for Australia. We didn't know it at the time, but I bowled the last over in South Africa to draw the series. I think they needed five off the over, only got three. And from that moment, I started to bowl the last over for Australia, and, and, and it's a way to get a get a game, isn't it? But even though there was better bowlers than me, like Shane Warne and Graham McGrath, I made a little niche for myself, but I was the guy, the guy that bowled the last over because I was probably our best Yorker bowler at that stage. And because of my action, I used to get a little bit of reverse swing as well. So I liked that responsibility. And um, the 96 World Cup semi-final, I got to bowl last you over. You Walsh as well. I, I bowled out. There's no bigger... You know, when I talk about the great rivalries of world sport, Ali um, versus Frazier, um, yeah. you know, Warren versus Cullen and... You know, Fleming and Walsh has got to be there, I would have thought. Um, <laughs> and Courtney was great, great form. I think he was averaging about two at that stage. But um, we got through there. So that probably reinforced <laughs> my, my death behind big Courtney. And um, <laughs> but you must admit, when you bowl last over in a World Cup semi, you think of probably 50 years till it gets down to that type of scenario again. And it was three years and I was bowling it again. And it was a tough one, you know, nine to win. South Africa need, um, sorry, South Africa need nine wicket uh, runs. We need a wicket, six balls. And the night before, we'd come up with a plan because Lance Clusen was such a dangerous batsman. He was on strike. We decided to bowl wide Yorkers outside of stump, which mm. they do a lot now. But at that stage, that was quite radical. And for me, to be fair, they come up with the night before the game. They didn't actually, we didn't get two days to practice them. And yeah. a couple of overs before, I actually yorked him a f- three times from around the wicket, cramping him. And then I just remember thinking, if I get hit through for four through the leg side here, I- I'm going to get such a rocket. So I tried the wide york. I didn't quite get it right. He got a thick edge for four. four yeah. So in hindsight, I reckon the the yorkers um, angling in were probably the best option. So ran in, released it. And it wasn't a bad Yorker, actually, you know, just outside of stump, and, and he smashed it for, like, I, I don't think a ball has been hit that hard ever in the history of the game. Fast. And yeah, I remember it, yeah. And, got, and you got to remember, in England, their short boundaries, quick outfields, the white duke balls retain their hardness and didn't go reverse, you know. With yeah. the white kookaburra, it, it was great bowl at the death. They got soft and they swung, right? So it, they were awesome to bowl with. So... So all of a sudden, you've lost a few weapons from your armoury, as in softball and reverse and big outfields. So now it's five balls, uh, five runs to win a five balls, one wicket. Steve Waugh goes, you're right. And I said, I'm getting there, skipper. And I release the second ball. Good line. It's a half volley. He belts it for four. Like, absolutely. He doubles the speed on this yeah, one. Yeah. And it's a tie. And I can sense everyone's heads dropping down and, I have a bit of fun with it um, in in, uh, in corporate speaking gigs, but I do, in a serious mode, um, I just had this voice that just said, you have to bowl him out now. It was funny, like people asked, did you think about not bowling no ball or a wide, you know, with one to win? And yeah. I remember just going, I have to bowl him out. I've got to take control. And I said to Steve Ball, I want to come over the wicket, which I wanted to do all along, but yeah. I, I did the team plan. And Steve Waugh, I reckon, won us that World Cup because he wasn't 
um, a tyrant leader. He wasn't a dictator. He, he actually respected when when teammates um, backed themselves, he backed you. That's the yeah. one thing I got out of Steve War. And he could have. I wonder whether you know Hansi Cronje, who looked a bit more of a dictator-like captain, oh, what he would have done if a South African ball. I, I think they would have persisted with the um, with the the plan. But for me, as I talked about earlier, I, I like flexibility in my bowling plans um, when when I was bowling anyway. Steve Ross says, "Yep, no worries." So I came over the wicket, ring field to stop the single, um, half track and miss hit. Ball goes to Darren Lehman. Lehman misses the run out, and I'm walking <laughs> back going, both hope that's not our last chance to win the World Cup. But funny with the pressure, Klusner and Alan Donald, the other batsmen, they don't communicate, don't talk. And yeah. I often think if I was batting with Steve Waugh or, uh, or Michael Bevan, with three balls to go, whoever's on strike, just try and hit through the field for the next two balls, and then we just run off the last ball. But it's funny how pressure changes, and then... Fourth ball was a beauty. I actually bowled a really good Yorker. And I vividly remember Klusner jogging, uh, you know, just jamming down on it. He starts running, not sure if he called. Donald's not sure whether to run. Mark Wall fields. I, and he has got the stumps. Then I get the ball and I proceed to underarm the ball, ball to poor Adam Gilchrist because it's, it's going about a centimetre an hour. It's going that slow, the underarm. And <laughs> eventually Gilly gets it and hits the stumps. And that's the reason we all play for it was just pure euphoria and if you see the reactions of us you know it's it's just pure relief enjoyment we're through to a world cup final yeah. and then we we got off as quick as possible and and it and, you know, it's interesting you know you don't what you do instinctively and 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 i remember richie benno i heard him saying it was one of the smartest things he's ever seen on the field you know not to throw an overarm which could have gone over gilly's could head anywhere. it could have yeah. yorked him could have half followed him, so the underarm was was astute. But there's there's no we don't practice that. Um, but Steve Ball reckons the only the only thing maybe possible was we used to have the nerds and the Julios within the Australian team, a bit of fun, um, <laughs> break the team two in, and we used to play. And we'd actually gone ten pin bowling two nights before that. Not, and, and I just wonder if the ten pin bowling just come in instinctively. Um, and even though it wasn't a strike. It actually got down there quick enough for us to, to, to go into the World Cup final. And, and to be honest, the build-up to Lords, we, we were always going to um, win that final because of the near, you know, runs against South Africa. And we played Pakistan and, and, we, and we peaked on the day, which you want to do in a World Cup final, yeah. don't you? And uh, highlight for me, celebrating with the boys, with the, with the um, trophy on the Lords pitch. You know, for me, it epitomised everything. Um, I loved about Australia through that World Cup. We we struggled early. We bonded together. The leadership was open enough to allow other guys to to take control. And and what happened? We won the World Cup. Yeah, what a great story, man. Thanks for thanks for yeah. sharing that, man. Yeah. I really appreciate oh, no, that, no. bud. Fantastic. All right, Flem. Just to finish up, I've just got a couple of personality ones. Aside from your home ground at the MCG, where was your favourite venue? Either in Australia or over the world? Favourite grounds? Um, I mean, I just talked about Lords, and to win a World Cup final at Lords was, was pretty special. I, I just think, a bit like the Baggy Green, there's something um, you know magical and, and mystical about Lords. You know, it, and, it, and a bit like MCG as well. I, I go to the MCG a lot for lunch. 
during the week when no one's there for meetings because um, it, I'm still in awe of the, the, the arena and, and Lords is a bit like that, that itself. And, you know, walking through the members, um, you know, the slant. Like, I'd love to... So I'd what do you do, sit down and just have lunch at the seat or...? Um, and, and the feed's pretty good um, at, at Lords as well, which might have hurt Mike Gatting's career. I, I think he was about <laughs> 70 kilos when he started and finished 140. Um, <laughs> but, and they had the chance to get rid of the slope, but it's been there for, what, 200 years and, 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 and they retained it. And for me, it was really hard because the white ball just moved too much because um, Glenn McGrath liked bowling with the slant that went into the right-hander. So for me, as a natural outswing bowler, I almost had to pitch the ball half a foot outside leg stump to get it um, to go past off stump. And then the odd one would hit the same and go straight and be a wide. So I'd love to play a test match there because I reckon the ball would have just moved the the whole time. So I found that really hard, the the slant. And to left-handers, I remember bowling to Anwar, the Pakistan left-hander, who's one of the best batsmen I bowled to, and, and and I was seriously pitching the ball a metre outside off stump, and, and he was still whipping me through the leg side for four. So it was an amazing place to, to bowl. Um, and but then can you compare it to um, Mumbai in a in a World Cup game in '96, where it was yeah, my first well. game back after my shoulder reconstruction? Um, you know, am I going to make it back in the Australian team? A McDermott injury over there gets me in. You know, it's 50,000 people. It is loud. Um, and, um, you know, they're booing, but I'd rather be booed than silence. And, you know, I end up getting five wickets in my first World Cup game, first game back after a shoulder reconstruction, after all the, you know, um, the weight sessions, Yeah, you know, I had to get to, you know, the, the six, you know, the six to nine months of rehab. Um but in front of this Indian crowd that was just amazing, that was just loud. I mean, there's something special about playing cricket over there in, in, in India as well. Yeah, it so, amazing, yeah. You know, and then, um, you know, you know, Calcutta with 100,000 people. And, you know, I was 12th yes. man in that Calcutta test that, that, that Dravid and, and Laxman, you know, turned around that... that uh, outright and, and turned it up a winner and there was almost 100,000 people every day so you know cricket's very lucky with that with the, the volume of crowds we get um, but also just the, the passion from the fans Alright Flynn I'm going to take you to your childhood when you were growing up what posters did you have on your bedroom wall? Yeah easy the three things I wanted to do uh, Dennis Suey was to, to, to be like him if I couldn't do that I wanted to play for the Hawthorne Football Club so their yeah. premiership um, posters up there. If I couldn't do that, I wanted to be lead guitarist of Kiss. So Ace Freely was up there. That, that were my three goals. Wow. Okay. We'll and take the, you back and the way that, Sorry, Flynn. The way that Kiss have rotated their lead guitarist, I'm, I'm still not out of that one. You might get a crack. <laughs> All right, mate. Last question. You're going to be hosting a private dinner party, Flem. Now, the only rules you've got five invites. Now, no family or friends, but it can be anyone, dead or alive. Who would you like to invite? Well, I've probably named... Well, I want Dennis Lee and Ace Freely um, straight away there. I, um, Muhammad Ali would have to be there, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, 
can we get Will Ferrell in there too, just just for for a bit of a laugh's sake? And um, as, as the fifth member, I would go with. Um, so I've got cricket. I've got music. I've got comedy. I've got. Yeah, I know. I'm just trying to think. So my my, my favourite girl. Um, let's get Michelle Pfeiffer in there. Oh yes, because I like it, and it's also Michelle Pfeiffer. It's also you know metaphor for five wickets, and I was part of the team that. Um, just a quick story on Pfeiffer's. You know how they now they get Pfeiffer's and they show the the ball to the crowd. Yeah. I was part of the team in 01 and we had a team meeting and, I, and I, with the fast bowling cartel and we, you know, we said, you know, the batsmen raised it back for 50s and 100. Why can't we raise the ball? And um, it got it ticked off. I didn't get the, to do it in test cricket. Um, I didn't get a five for after that, but I did in the county game and it was a real rush to do. So I, I feel... Uh, great that I was part of a legacy that keeps giving. Every time opposition, doesn't matter who does it, I, I feel a little bit of a tick. So I got a tick there, and then I brought up, I believe, if you batted 9, 10, or 11, if you got 25, you should raise your bat because it's harder to get 50s and 100s there. <laughs> and Steve Ward didn't go with that one. He said, yeah. I don't like that one. So that one didn't get through. But, um, yeah, Michelle Pfeiffer. I like it, five. especially Catwoman. Jesus. Catwoman sensational. Flem, before I let you go, you're going to do this to me again. Now, I want everyone following Flem. Unfortunately, this is going to be a hard word to say again. Twitter, he's the bowlologist. And Facebook, he's Damien Fleming, the bowlologist. Did I get that right, mate? That's good. You've, you've, you've upped it. I reckon you've had four attempts. You've got two right. You're going at 50%. That's uh, very consistent with the general public the there, Tristan. You've done very well. Raise the, the mic. And uh, thanks a lot for a great interview. Guys, we hope you enjoyed the episode with Damien Fleming. You know, Flem's... You know, he's quite the character and he shows some shares some great stories. So we really hope that you enjoyed that one. If you haven't yet, please also, if you're into that cricket sort of feel, check out our latest with Australian former cricket coach John Buchanan. Another great ahead. We've got we're gonna be recording this week with Greg Chappell. So please stay tuned for that one. And other ones, basketball. If you're into your basketball, I've got Shane Hill and Lee Garoya Loggins as a couple of my next guests. So a couple of the guys that I really idolised. Growing up in the 80s and 90s, Shane, of course, for the Sydney Kings and Brisbane Bullets, Leroy Loggins, he's an American, turned Australian, but he's one of the Bullets' best players of all time, and the NBL's best players of all time. So it's going to be an interesting chat to see where exactly he came from, and where he went, and then what he's doing now. So stay tuned for those ones, but for now, I'm Tristan Cannell, and this was Talking With TK.